Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. And happy Saturday once again. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager. And this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, life, and the Bible. You threw me off because you didn't say uh, what you're supposed to say. Oh, also known as Theology Mom. Yeah, so now she's You know what? Just go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> if you are in the chat box, please join us with your questions there. Tonight's show is going to be awesome. Let us know where you're watching from. We are live on Facebook, on the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook, Theology Mom Facebook, and the All the Things Facebook page. And we are also streaming live on YouTube. And helping us uh, tonight and pretty much anytime you see us is Bob Bontrager, official button pusher. Woohoo! Look at all those papers in the background. Yes, and tonight's moderator is Miss Laura Hartley. And Mr. Jeremy Webb from Chicagoland. What's up? What's up, guys? Yes, so definitely tell us uh, that you're watching. Uh, that always makes it fun to know who's watching and from where and do those little check-ins. And this is the audience participation time of Share the Show. Yes, if share you, it out. Tell your friends about it. Share it on Facebook. Share it. Share it. Share it. This, that's really the best way that you can help support us. If you like our content and you want us to, you know, um, really support what we're doing, the the number one way you can do that is hit that like button, comment, and share the show. Thanks so much. Now we're going to jump right in because we want to definitely get the most out of our time with Mr. Kevin McGarry from Every Black Life Matters. Last summer, there was a ton of talk about Black Life Matters. Who do we support? Do we support Black Life Matters? Do we not? And why or why not? And Kevin just stepped up and was like, you know what? I got something else for you. Here you go. Here you go. <laughs> That's you can, right. You can have this. I yes. think somebody must have sent us, inboxed us with his website. I must. He must have existed for five minutes because... He said he's only been doing this about six months, uh, but somebody sent us the, the the link to his website, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, this is great. Like somebody else who has uh, seems to have a similar heart to than what we're doing, and then we had an awesome opportunity. We spoke at a conference with Kevin a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. got to know him a little bit, and now we're we're just leveraging that into a podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are going to inform everyone what's going on with every Black Life Matters. That's right. All right, so let's get Kevin on here and fire up the Zoom machine. Hello. Hello. Thank so you for joining us. Here. So glad to have you. Thank you so much. You guys do such an awesome job. Boy, I tell you, this is, this is great. This is a real honor and a privilege for me. Oh, wow. Well, we feel the same. Yeah, Thank you. We're excited to have you on the show. Yeah. Maybe um, for those people that they're, they're new to your ministry, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to start Every Black Life Matters. Okay, a little bit about myself. I was, uh, let's see, born and raised in San Francisco. I uh, was born in, in Hunters Point, which was, uh, you know, project housing. Uh, so I was born in abject poverty and moved to a lower middle class neighborhood, lived uh, in San Francisco and pretty much lived the uh, boys in a hood type of, a, you know, lifestyle. 
Um, and uh, then I went to San Jose State, got a sociology degree. Mm-hmm. And so really steeped in liberalism uh, and progressivism and leftism all of my life. And uh, then we got married. I got married uh, a little bit after graduating college. And, you know, the Lord lifted the veil and really, you know, my wife at around the same time started to look at all of the various domains of our life and what really aligned with the word of God and what didn't. And the Lord really exposed that this area, your area of civic engagement, the way that you vote, the way that you participate civically is not acceptable. Um, so for us, and I know it doesn't happen to everybody like that, obviously it doesn't, but for us, uh, that was really a pivot point, uh, in our, in our life. And, uh, so we started to really begin to apply principles of biblical principles, uh, uh, to our vote, how we vote, who we support and that kind of thing. And it really changed our, our whole life trajectory at that point. Uh, from that point, uh, the Lord used me to write several books. Uh, so I started with a book on the kingdom, God and his kingdom, which was about 15, no, about 18 years ago. And then I had another one called Instanity. Uh, it's a hybrid word, in, instant insanity. And I called it Instanity. And then uh, one a few years ago, Just Justly Justice. And then uh, one just last year, The War on Women from the Root to the Fruit. So I am not a writer. But, uh, I, you know, when the Lord, you know, gives me something to do, I'll do it. And uh, so those, those are the works that have been, uh, you know, culminated from just my trying to be obedient and walk the walk. So uh, really what happened, though, in last summer is we started to see the violence, the hatred, the rage, the frustration. Uh, everybody saw what happened to George Floyd, and the sentiment was universal, that it was unacceptable. Uh, that was an egregious murder. We, you know, we all saw it. Um, uh, but the way that our communities were being torn apart, the way that uh, people were expressing themselves, the way that black and brown businesses were being burned down, and we had a lot of blacks just on the sidelines crap, clapping, saying, yeah, yeah, that's the way we do it. Um, it really struck a chord with me. Uh, there were a lot of people of faith that when they began to look at the uh, BLM and their organization and what they were doing, they really felt that this this something about this organization being uh, led by a revolutionary Marxist and and uh, anti-family, anti-fatherhood, uh, and uh, a lot of the other things, uh, you know, witchcraft and incantations and things like that. Uh, people felt uncomfortable with that. So uh, my co-founder Neil. Uh, said, you know, look, Kev, I think that this is, you know, the Lord is calling us to do something in this space. So we thought about it and uh, we came up with every Black Life Matters. Uh, One of the things that we felt that the Lord was really leading us to do is to leverage the momentum of BLM, stay in the same nomenclature, but completely reframe the argument. Uh, BLM was clear that they do not, that they're only about police brutality and really white on black citizen police brutality. And uh, black life is much more uh, dynamic than just police brutality. So we wanted to come up with a a way that we can represent uh, black life and really support, fully support black life uh, from the womb to the tomb and every phase of black life in between. Uh, There's a lot of people that say, well, why did you, why every black life? Why did you even have to use black? Why did you, you know, and, 
the the quick answer to that is um, for us, it's 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 we're not making a, a stance. This is not a power move for us. For us, we're saying every and you could put in parentheses phase of parentheses close black life matters. For us, we're saying, look, we're going to be there. We're going to support every phase of black life in the womb, early childhood development, educational choices, fatherhood. Uh, criminal justice reform, uh, economic opportunities in, a, in the communities, feeding the poor, all of it is what we're concerned with. So so that's why we decided to go with Every Black Life Matters. The other thing is, is that we wanted to immediately be, begin to put the focus on really where the focus should be on. BLM says, you know, look, before you could say all lives matter, uh, you, you can't say all lives matter without agreeing that black lives matter. And what we say is, look, you can't really say black lives matter generally unless you fundamentally agree that every single black life matters specifically. So I feel a fan we're, coming we're, on. <laughs> we're another we're another level of granularity. We're we're back. We're down to the, the brass tacks. If you really want to support black life, this is the kind of organization that is actually doing the work. That's awesome. You said a lot in there. And one of the questions that I want to follow up with is what are the ways specifically, um, can you give us like a couple of distinct things that you would say, you know, BLM is, they don't support the nuclear family. They don't, um, they don't, you know, or they do support the trans family. And um, they're really about, you know, this whole, this whole different narrative. I feel like then what has historically been in the black community? I feel yeah. like th this, this wasn't the black community, you know, not even, I was talking to Krista earlier, not even in the nineties, you know, no. like I grew up in South LA in the nineties and you didn't see that. And so one, I would, I wouldn't, well, let me, let me start here. What do you think are some of the shifts that have happened in black culture to to cause this? Because I'm stumped. Like I was like, I don't. I was listening to some old school '90s music today, and I was like, "What happened to us? What had happened was I don't know. I, I'm I'm stumped." Yeah, I you know, um, I I don't know what are you know the cultural shift. I think, first of all, we have to realize that culture is dynamic and it's going to shift irrespective of, you know, um, of, of any particular type of community, like the Black community, for instance. Um, but I think fundamentally what happened in the Black community is we saw a lot less of fathers being available and around in the households. Fathers even be close, even being closely associated to their progeny. And I think that that has a profound effect on what children then will tend to want to do. So we saw uh, a lot of things happen with uh, the rap culture and the hip hop culture and those types of things. And most of those people, uh, by their own admission, most of the, the biggest rappers, they, they really didn't have a father in the home. Um, and, and, and they sort of, you know, and, and, and a lot of people pay attention to those people, right? So they begin to create a narrative about riches and glory and fame and, and women and, and whatever. And uh, so we then start to have a cultural drift in that direction. And I think um, it's had a profound effect on uh, the black community because a lot of those people have been heralded as, you know, hey, they made it and this is how you make it. Uh, we, we also saw that um, a lot of our other superstars in sports as well have uh, come from single parent households. And I think, 
you know, I really think that fundamentally, I guess what I'm saying is, is fatherhood has a profound effect on, on being able to appropriately shepherd uh, the way that children respond to culture, uh, the way that culture and society in general starts to shift and drift in any particular direction. I think uh, having strong men uh, be a voice for some of that would have, would have helped at least slow the direction. But, you know, we can't forget as, as well that we're in, um, we're in, you know, the Bible tells us of all these times. And so these were projected and, um, and, and prophetically announced that these would be the days that will be coming. And I mean, we see in Jude and we see in a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, books of the Bible where, um, you know, we would have to contend for the faith and that the faith is going to be under attack and that we're going to be persecuted. And, you know, so we're, we're just in those times now. We, you know, right now it's time for the church to awaken and rise and stand and, and start to uh, take its rightful place as the bride of Christ. And uh, unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that, uh, but, you know, now's the time, so... Yeah, I think I want to um, put up the website here for a minute for all our viewers, because I want to encourage people go check out Kevin's website and ministry, follow him on social media. Um, but one of the things that that really stood out to me the in the first minute that I came on your site was this, you know, your talking points here and that you specifically had free markets on there. And I want to talk a little bit about that because you're pretty um, straightforward about the fact that you think that um, Marxism is not the way to I feel like help he's the poor. About a lot of things. Yeah, at that, that conference, I was like, oh, he didn't. He didn't put no sugar in his Kool Aid. He just took that right. I was. He, yes, with no sweet. Go ahead. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I like that. But that that your statement, your stand against Marxism, is part of the pillars of your organization. But I think it's so counterintuitive to what's happening in the emerging generation right now is socialism's on the rise. Like, yes, that's how you help the poor. We need more redistribution of wealth. So maybe talk to us a little bit about um, why you take that position. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and for a lot of your listeners and viewers, they they may have that same question sort of top of mind. Even a lot of uh, pastors that I've spoken with in the past, they didn't even understand really why is Marxism such a, a bad word. Um, so let's 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 just take a look at history. Um, I think history is our best teacher. Um, Marxism and all uh, and and all of the phases in between. So it's socialism, Marxism, and communism, and they sort of it's a it's a linear progression between those two, starting with socialism, then Marxism, and then communism. Um, and when you get to communism, it's more totalitarian government. Marxism is uh, pseudo totalitarian and uh, socialism is just wealth redistribution. I'm just summarizing. There's a lot that goes into each of those. But for the sake of time and, and that, I don't want to get in the weeds on this. But um, when you look at the uh, all of the either Marxism or every or the variation thereof, um, and you look at the outcomes uh, where it's been tried and the outcomes of all those countries that have tried it, it's very clear that it doesn't work. Um, actually, Marxism, communism, and and socialism are responsible for over 120 million deaths of innocents. Um, in every society where they've tried it, the people that are most susceptible, the most vulnerable, that are most mm -hmm. Um, uh, the first ones to be stomped on 
are the ones that are on the lower uh, scale, uh, the lower uh, skill, the lower income. Those are the ones who are the first ones out. So uh, it really is a brutal, archaic, tyrannical way to try to run a government, a society, an economy. Um, uh, conversely, when you look at where capitalism has been tried, it's actually pulled more people out of poverty than any other economic system ever thought about. So um, mine is not a knee jerk that Marxism is just bad and we just have to stand against it. No, 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 no. I'm looking at history. I'm applying history and economic theory and I'm looking at the outcomes and capitalism and free markets have pulled more people out of poverty than any other economic system ever. So that's a fact. Now people can study and they can do that. Now here's the thing for people of faith and for pastors who may be looking uh, because that may not sway them. So here's the deal. Uh, Marxism is demonic. Let that sink in. It's demonic. You want proof? Okay. So uh, Marxism uh, actually didn't start in the late 1800s with uh, Marx and Engels. Engels. It actually started, uh, you know, an iteration of it started in 14, 1500 AD with Plato. So Plato's Republic was the first iteration of trying to come up with a uh, sort of socialized uh, uh, planned economy type of a mechanism for big government where the masterminds kind of oversee how governments are run. And then you had Thomas Hobbes and Thomas More, and then you had Hegel. And all of these men had different variations of the theme that were started in the 1400s. Then you move then to a few others, and then you get to Marx and Engels in the late 1800s. And so, and they, they are the ones who really sort of culminated and perfected the model, if you will, of we're going to start with socialism. It's going to evolve naturally to Marxism and it will evolve naturally to communism. But communism is where we want to go. This is what Marx uh, says. So, um, so communism is the end goal, period. You may start with a little sort of benign socialism where you just redistribute wealth, but it, it's not meant to stop there. It's a linear progression. Now, the thing that's interesting about all of these men, starting with Plato, Thomas Hobbes, Thomas More, Hegel, Marx, and Engels, is they had one common denominator in common. They were all virulent haters of God, all of them, all avowed atheists and hated the notion of God. So they were demonic. So it's ironic that we would actually have church folk saying we can rally around a demonic scheme, a demonic philosophy that's killed 120 million plus people around the world since it's been tried in all these different places. Uh, this is nothing to play with, folks. I mean, this, this is, there's nothing redeemable out of Marxism. God I, gives I, us all. Okay, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I, I got so many questions there. Like, one of the points that you made of, you know, the about free markets being a better method of lifting people out of poverty. One of the concerns that Monique and I have had, and we're going to have an economist on um, in a few weeks to, to talk, continue to explore these themes. Yeah. Um, another economist <laughs> uh, is that, you know, my concern is that I, I think, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this, but 
I think that this idea of multi-generational welfare is a system that actually keeps people in poverty. And, you know, free markets have the, the, you could list, lift an entire family out of poverty in one generation by teaching them from an entrepreneurial standpoint of starting a business. I mean, to me, that just seems intuitive. Why are we dumping billions of dollars into um, building a, a, a system that, that really pays people almost not to work exactly. and violates their creation dignity that, that part of God's created order, the way he's created us is to work. So I, yeah. I have so many concerns about what I see as being a, what tries to be an, a well-intended idea of under the umbrella of helping the poor, but yeah. really vi- is a violation of God's created order it and is. that free markets are more consistent with that Christian ethic about working. So I guess that's kind of the first point I would love to have you respond to like with your to thoughts. One. Yeah, because in Genesis 1, she, she, <laughs> always, she just, always goes to Genesis 1. Okay, <laughs> About the work. It's yep. part of the created order. It's part of the created order. Yeah, I go to Genesis 1, too. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you follow God's pattern, right? He, he worked, he worked, he worked, he worked, and he rested but he worked. And um, the other thing I'd like to point out to people is the parable of the talents. Um, if, if Jesus was a socialist and socialism was really part of his makeup, and that's really what he was trying to get us to do. Um, instead of saying, Hey, you know, using the parable and saying, we gave, you know, uh, one guy had five, one guy had two, one guy had one parable of the talents. Um, he would have easily said, look, we, you know, I gave them all the same amount and one buried it and one, you know, he would have, it would have, the story would have changed. But he, he, he made a point that there are some that are going to have more talent, skills and abilities and assignments that God gives them specifically when he gives them purpose and destiny in the womb, Jeremiah 1, 5. So we're not robots. We don't all have the same assignment in the earth, but we all have special skills, talents, and abilities that God put, places a demand on when he puts us in the moon. And we're supposed to fulfill that. So if, if, if government now takes the place of God and government says, no, no, you don't really have to work. You can kind of kick it, you know, just have a few kids and you can kick it here and you'll be all right. You, you know, you're not going to come up, but you'll be, you know, you, you'll be able to survive. That's not what God intended for any of his children. We all have an assignment that, and there's a demand that's p- placed on it. And he, it's clear because remember what he said to the one that he gave one and the one buried it didn't do anything would be like today, you know, a welfare person or a person that's perpetually just doesn't want to work. What did he tell that, that man? He says, look, you are a wicked, evil, and, 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 you know, he went on, and then he cursed him to hell. He said, go where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth. So, I mean, there's a serious consequence for sitting on the skills, talents, and abilities that God gives you. And the only way you can really express that is if you actually t- partake in, uh, you know, an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, free market economic system. Yeah. If, you, if it's Marxism. Uh, which was designed to completely replace God. That's they hated God so much. And and they hated the notion of God that they said, look, God doesn't exist. 
we masterminds need to be at the top of the chain here, make sure that we keep every, and we'll just give them a, a basic, uh, you know, universal level, basic uh, income. Yeah. yeah. This is where we're, our country is, is trying to push all again under the umbrella of helping the poor. And we're seeing so many young people falling for this. And it's like, no, this is not the way this is not God's prescription for what we do now. You know, we can have a conversation about people who genuinely can't work yeah, and right. safety nets and, and all of yeah. that. But our concern is what are we doing to able-bodied people, you know, with this, uh, with this idea that work is sort of optional if, if the government will just send you money. That's, and I think that too, like the, it, one of the other concerns related to work that I had during the riots last summer, you know, with BLM is that many of these businesses were destroyed mm -hmm. and, and think of the, the lasting impact of that in those communities. And, you know, you were, I mean, I can speak directly to that. I, I lived in South LA during the King riots. Um, wow. And, you know, there are places I can drive down to South Central right now and be like, there was a building there and it, it was never rebuilt. Never. And those riots were in 92, you know, so it's it it does go down to a thing of, you know, work. This was someone's place of employment. This but yeah, we heard business. many pastors saying, mm -hmm. well, the looting is OK. When I'm like, yeah. I think that might be theft. Yeah. And I think God's word says th some things about that and these businesses and the livelihoods and so it's like if we're going to talk about urban areas and, and you know, black communities, to me, these are very devastating consequences in the long term for these communities. This doesn't help them. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, last summer was devastating in so many ways. Um, we had a lot of pastors, as you indicate, Krista, that were silent mm -hmm. and complicit. There was so much reprobation that went on there. Uh, because we had people that are clearly uh, committing crimes. There, there, there are people that lost lost their lives. There are law enforcement officers that lost their lives, and we saw no contrition, remorse, or denouncement, or anything from uh, you know clergy, pastors, people of faith in general. I mean, most churches that I know of, at least, were silent, and so you know, the people within those churches said, okay, well, it must be cool. Let's, let's go on out this tonight too, then and do some, you know, so it, it, there was clear biblical justice that was not being carried out. Uh, that should, should have been that we should have did a contrast that somebody should have done a, done a contrast with and said, look, this is not biblical justice. This is, this is actually well beyond that. And we need to denounce these people that are burning down these innocent black and brown businesses, mostly innocent businesses and, and, and that are putting, putting themselves upon these innocent people who are just trying to have a meal or just walking down the street. Um, but there was no denouncement. And, and that's when, you know, we, we've got some real underlying issues here within the body of Christ. Um, and, you know, I feel like, you know, white pastors can speak out and be like, well, we shouldn't riot. We shouldn't loot. Like that goes against scripture. Don't run with the mob and excess, like all these little things. And I mean, not little things, but important things. And then they're seen as being racist. Right. On the other hand, though, you get white pastors who want to be more social justice, want to understand the movement, want to stand with the marginalized and God bless them. 
my question is, where are the black pastors? I mean, growing up in South LA, there was a church on every corner. And I don't feel like they take a side either way. Where, where are they? Yeah. So that's, that's a real uh, missed opportunity, I think, for a lot of uh, black churches and, and, and black pastors of principle and black pastors who take the Bible seriously. Now, I have to have to, you know, caveat this because right, quite honestly, and you guys do a lot of work around this. There are a lot of black pastors today that don't take the Bible seriously. Um, so, I mean, that's regrettable, but that's where the, you know, where the church is. I mean, there's a lot of white and black pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really see um, you know standpoint epistemology via CRT, uh, social justice gospel um, and uh, liberation theology, black liberation theology, as really sort of the lens that they look to the Bible from. Um, now the danger in that is that they're cursing themselves when they do that, and they're cursing their parishioners, all of their parishioners that imbibe this sort of false gospel are literally being cursed over the pulpit. And if anybody doubts that, just read Galatians 1.8 and 1.9. And it's Paul talking to the church of Galatia. And he says, he basically says, look, even if an angel from heaven comes to you and gives you any one iota of a different gospel than what we have preached, they are accursed and they are cursed to hell. And he, he was so emphatic about this that he repeated it in Galatians 1.9, almost verbatim. So this is a real stern admonition that when you take the gospel, the purity, purity of the gospel, and you weave in a little CRT and a little liberation theology, a little black liberation theology, a little bit of social justice gospel in there, you're cursed. And the people in the pulpits and in the, uh, uh, yeah, people in the uh, pews are cursed. So we, we, we have some serious, serious problems. And that's why you guys do the important work that you do that's why we're out and we're trying to help um, churches and leaders and community leaders also understand um, that you can't run with demons and expect to, you know, reach eternity with God. You have to at some point repent, really, really repent and then, you know, get it back right. You better go ahead and say that. You can't run with demons. Go ahead. Well, you know, I I appreciate Kevin's candor about this because I've been saying this for a long time. She wouldn't let me say it in public, but now you're saying it. So I'm going to just say it. I I only say it because the word of God says it. I I think that these frameworks are mind-altering, mind-bending, demonic frameworks. And that once you start down this path, of thinking this way and adopting these lenses, it can be really hard to undo it in your mind because you just start seeing everything through this. Yeah. And it, it it there is a definite spiritual component to this. And you're really the first person who I've ever heard say that out loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, so I don't I don't say it arrogantly or boastfully or anything like that. I say yeah. it matter of factly because the word of God tells us that it's demonic. Uh, you know, um, you know, if Paul says if there's anything outside of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, um, you're cursed to hell. I mean, that that really kind of makes the point there. I mean, when you have people that that take the gospel message and then pervert it with uh, the ways of the world, when you have people that say, look, um, you know, we need to stand against the hegemony in all areas, you know, we're in, you know, we're in trouble because, you know, 
God himself, uh, you know, hegemony for, for those that are listening, it, it just means uh, uh, those with dominant power, uh, power structures, uh, those with dominant ideology, right? Uh, they use mostly use it in the context of, you know, white, white hegemony and white males and stuff like that. But, but when you have people that make their mission, and these are people that are, you know, your, your critical race theory adherents, that say, look, we're going to stand against hegemony wherever it exists. And then you look at the word. We're going to tear down patriarchy. I mean, that's that to me, that's a similar thing. Yeah. yeah. Straight against the word of God, because God himself in in their mind is a hegemonic force. Right. So they're going to go against God. They're going to go against Jesus and the cross because that's a uh, it's, you know, Jesus is the way, the only way. And so it's, it's hegemonic and it's it's singular. And then they're going to start coming up with their additional gospel, like Paul Harvey is on this uh, uh, Chris Lam thing, and he's sort of merging, you know, Christian and Islam and other folks that are experimenting with ways. You have you have most of the major speakers in the CRT vein that will say this is what they say uh, that uh, the gospel is not enough; it's incomplete; it's a half gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a half gospel. Uh, it, it's the gospel for the spirit, but it doesn't, it's not a social gospel. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a social gospel. And that's where critical race theory comes in. And they say, that's why it's so important that we have like liberation theology, black liberation theology that covers the social gospel side because the gospel is incomplete. Or they, or so, they redefine the gospel as being loving loving your neighbor, which I'm always quick to point out, well, no, that's the law, not the gospel. But they conflate that. And you'll hear him talking about the works of the gospel and the full gospel. And what they really mean by that is loving your neighbor. It's a work. Okay, I've interrupted you twice now. You're going to come for me. All right, go. (laughs) Because you've brought up Black liberation theology quite a bit. And the last couple of days, I've really been like, well, I'm one, we're reading um, Walter Strickland's dissertation. And and, mm -hmm, look at you. Uh Uh-huh. 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 Yeah, the devil is a lie. And so... (laughs) This this idea of black liberation theology and cone and even like yeah. before cone because see CRT is after cone but yeah. many pastors today are like well I've been accused of being a CRT you know proponent and things like that I never heard of CRT well Eric to- Mason is a great example he said he never heard of CRT. And then he started getting accused of, of this. being like yeah. a critical race theorist and like a proponent of all that and all that. My thought is and you let me know what you think. Black liberation theology and CRT are kind of like twins. Like they kind of roll on the same plane. One just lives in academia. One lives on the street. So I grew up understanding all of the street terminology of the, of critical race theory. And then when I got into school, I learned the academic side, but I learned this side because the church and the street, at least in South LA, definitely merged together at some yeah. point because you have grandmothers and aunts and you know yeah. all these older people who come from the church and that intermingles, you overhear it. So I don't I don't know what it, am I on to something? Is is it 
Yeah. So, so the way I like to describe it is this, uh, consider a Trojan horse. Now, if you, if anybody knows about Greek mythology and all of that, Trojan horse is when they, they, you know, when Troy was in a war with somebody, there's somebody rolled in a Trojan horse, a big, really big edifice. And it was just a big wooden horse. They said they're presenting it to him as a gift. And at night out came thousands of soldiers overtook the city and blah, blah, blah. So it's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing horribly, but that's essentially what it is. So consider that metaphor for this. Equity is the Trojan horse. And out of equity, we get critical race theory. We get liberation theology, black liberation theology. We get social justice. Um, so we get all of these things that come out. Now, fundamentally, they all are have the same root, Marxism. So they're all demonic. They all have a demonic root. I already talked about why Marxism is demonic. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it came from demonic people who hate God. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. They're all Marxist fundamentally at its root. They're all Marxist movements. And so, um, so, but what, now that you mentioned James Cohn, let me just give you a quote. I just dug it up. Oh, I hope it's the one I think you're thinking of. <laughs> He I got, said, I got a quote she got her favorite Cone This quotes. is what he says, just so, so everybody here can kind of understand James Cone and what he was about. He says, American white theology is a theology of the Antichrist insofar as it arises from an identification with the white community, thereby placing God's approval on white oppression and the black existence. So this is why we're getting so many pastors that say, look, I don't, I don't believe in that that white gospel anymore, or that white Jesus, which I don't, I don't believe in a white Jesus either. I mean, <laughs> Jesus wasn't white. But anyway, that's a whole nother stuff. But anyway, um, so, um, so they're, they're stepping away from the gospel and, and, and they're really, you know, giving credence to, I don't know, black Hebrews maybe, or some other, I don't know what it is. They're, they're, if they're not relying on the Bible, I don't know what it is, but anyway, um, it's that kind of thinking, though, that's that they're leaning on. And when you have somebody that says that, you know, th that they, they are going to create a theology, essentially, that usurps the, God's gospel because the gospel is incomplete or it's it, it, it's a white gospel or this and that. Then, you know, that you have a pro you have a person that's really completely antithetical. And why are we following him? Why are we listening to him? Why do so many people? Um, you know, adhere but to. But you hear this all the time, Kevin. Is you know, I was just watching uh, a video this week with with four black pastors. It was a panel, and over and over and over again, they kept saying, "Well, we need to disciple out the white theology." And I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. What does that even mean? What does that <laughs> even mean? Are they saying because? I read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and he's white, that it's somehow white theology. But then Monique and I have many conversations with people from ancient faith traditions in other countries that they're not white and yeah. they have the same theology that we do. I mean, and it's like, they don't know who Wayne Grudem is. They just know what Christianity is. It's the, it's the thought to me that it doesn't include liberation. It doesn't include the fact that there ah. needs to be some kind of freeing. It's like Kendi said, you know, a Christianity that requires a savior is racist. It's saying that there's something inherently wrong with me. But a, a Christianity that liberates, that's a Christianity that, that he can get behind. And that so that's what they racist. want to disciple it, out of me. 
pretty much the fact that you need a savior. I'll be the first one to say there is something wrong with me. Yo, I need I need a savior. You know, that and but that's that's the goal. Like it's to change Christianity. But these are people that are like platformed at Dallas Seminary. These are not, we're not talking about union here. It doesn't matter what seminary they go to. Look at Biola. It doesn't matter. It's, it, it, this thing is so insidious and people are patient. Like they are waiting to completely usurp the system. Southern Baptist, uh, Theological Seminary, all of them have, have succumbed to this. And what they're basically saying is, look, and they won't ever admit it, but I encourage them to just look, admit it, just say it, quit playing games with us and playing games with God. Just say, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough. What Jesus did on the cross is just not enough. It's inadequate. And then just, you know, deal with your, where you are with that. And then at some point, hopefully you'll repent before it's too late. But, but you you have to know then that you're in a, a fallen state. Well, at least you can, you know, admit it and, and move on. Um, one of the things that really gets me about all these people, though, these these real radical um, activists that are critical race theory activists, BLM activists and all are they're They're just a couple of, of, of data points that I challenge them on. I challenge Kendi on it. I challenge D'Angelo on it. And um, and uh, they fail. And that data point is about systemic racism. And and what I say about systemic racism, uh, I don't know if you have that, Monique, uh, if you can bring that up. Oh, yeah, we have that graphic. Where we were going. Go ahead. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. what they so fundamentally what I say, you know, I, I did a definition of systemic racism. What is systemic refers to something that's spread throughout a system affecting all the groups and all in the entire system. Uh, a body, it could be a, a workplace, could be an economy, it could be an entire discipline. And um, what I tell people is, um, would you stand with me, Kendi and, and D'Angelo, if I could show you the, uh, an actual systemically racist uh, entity today? And at the end of the day, they won't. They'll stand with the systemic racist. Mm-hmm. So... The next, and, and let, give me, let me give you an example. So the next one, if you can go to the next one, this is what is the epitome of systemic racism. This is a woman who said, look, we don't want the word to get out that we want to fully exterminate the Negro population, fully exterminate Negroes. Uh, her quote, her words. She, she was with the KKK, women's KKK. She's done all these other uh, things. Uh, she called blacks reckless breeders and weeds and scourge of society. Um, and she started Planned Parenthood to uh, exterminate Blacks. That's why she did it. Now, to confirm why I say that's why she did it is because uh, her vision is being carried out today masterfully. The actual demographics breakdowns for Blacks is we make up about 13, 13.5% of the population. Of the 13.5%, about 6.5% of them are women. Of the six and a half percent of women, only about half of those are childbearing, 15 to 44. So about three, 3.2%. So for a 3.2% demographic, you're going to actually put Planned Parenthood, 90% of Planned Parenthoods in to address a 3.2% demographic. That doesn't work in any business. That business model is broken. It, it demonstrates a strategic purposeful, willful desire to exterminate people. 
Black genocide is what this organization did and what they're doing today. It's clear, it's unequivocal, and they came out last summer, July of 2020, and said, look, Margaret Sanger, our founder, was a racist, and yeah, we, you know, she was racist and bigot, and, and we were, we are systemically racist. This is what Planned Parenthood said. Do your research, July 2020, Planned Parenthood in New York. So what I encourage everybody, if you're, if you're all up in arms about racism, great. You come with me. Let's do a march down to the nearest Planned Parenthood and say, we want, to, want you to stop your systemic racism, your targeting of Black babies in the womb and exterminating the, the, the Black population. It's time to stop it. All of them, none of them will stand with me with that. As a matter of fact, BLM, when I was at a, a, a March for Life in Oakland just a couple of years ago, BLM, and we were talking about Sanger and all of the, you know, the Black genocide that's happening in the Black community, BLM came out and protested us talking about black babies being destroyed in the room. And here's the irony. All of the people from Black Lives Matter were white. It was, there's so many crazy. <laughs> so. Please stop helping us. What, <laughs> yeah. what is his name? Riley, Jason Riley. I don't know. I think yeah. it is. He wrote a book. He, he wrote a book a couple years ago called "Please Stop Helping Us," and I'm just like, please. And you know, I, I was actually going to ask um, a question because Jeremy Webb wrote that earlier and said, "Why do you think so many of the people who come out to support BLM aren't black? They're usually white. Like a lot of these BLM marches are white people. They have a few black people, like one." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here, here's the other thing about that. While you're on that, is is the people that are with BLM, the 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 foot soldiers that are doing most of the damage in the black community, they're with the other organization called Antifa. Now those people are 99 percent white, right? And they live in the suburbs. So here's the irony: BLM is standing aside and applauding as these white folks come into the black community and destroy black and brown businesses. And they're, <laughs> excuse me, why didn't, if, if these white folks who live in the suburbs are so outraged, great, stay in your own community, destroy your own house first, and then yeah. destroy your, your, suburb, your, your suburbs where you live. Why are you coming down to the urban communities where businesses are struggling day to day, especially with COVID, and destroying black and brown businesses? And then we're applauding. Do, do you understand what, mm -hmm. the, the insanity that went on last summer? It's so bad on, on every level. And then we have people, you know, I, I don't get it. So Valerie, um, she corrected me. She was like, hey, hold up. She said, make sure you understand those are white liberals. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no, I got you, Valerie. I got you. I see. I, I, I stand corrected. Yes, I'll go ahead and add that in there. But it's true. Um, and not only does Jason, I want to say his name is Jason Riley. Um, not only does he speak about it, but Thomas Sowell speaks about it. Larry Elder speaks about it. Um, you know, and these are black people who are saying like, hey, the help that you want to give us really just burned down my grocery store, you know, the bank. It's not that many banks in the hood anyway, or grocery stores. You know, it yeah. burned down this laundromat. And now, thank you very much for your help. 
Because you're going to go back to your middle class neighborhood where you have banks and, right. you know, all kind of places and things like that. And you didn't did. You feel like you didn't done yourself good to fight on my behalf. But I don't need you to fight for me. Well, I think and we're of, the social justice warriors, right? Yeah. yeah and the frustration is you got all these yeah. like I think it, I'm going to start calling it. I'm going to make an announcement right now. I'm going to start calling it the new liturgy of reading these prayers about our complicity in in racism from from previous generations uh dallas seminary just did one in their chapel this year it's like reading these these apologies well it's like well, what about the complicity in 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 white people burning out down neighborhoods now mm-hmm. yeah. like you know what about the complicity in that that you know mm-hmm. that pastors aren't speaking out or saying like hey this is not the way mm-hmm. right. we, you know if we really want to have urban renewal we need to talk about valuing life, valuing jobs, and encouraging entrepreneurship, encouraging ownership, encouraging yeah. uh, private property. But see, that sounds and, like responsibility. And I feel like this new generation, they're not trying to hear all that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a whole new thing. I'm trying to go through the But comments if we're going to have prophetic voices in the church, go we've got to be putting forth biblical biblically faithful concepts of how to help people i mean well and i think that's why i appreciate kevin's ministry because it does look at the the concept of responsibility like how are you going to take care of yourself like the lord has put you here he's given you a mind you are able-bodied what are you doing because sitting up here just thinking that you're going to live off of someone else isn't going to work that you're not going to be successful that way nor are you going to be successful by going out rioting and those people who are encouraging you to riot and then don't pay your bail when you go to jail. You know, like we have to be able to do something else. And so if black people are saying that all of these things are the issues, I love Kevin's organization because it says, well, here's an answer to these issues. Yeah. It's it's clear and it's based on scripture. The scripture, yeah. scripture says it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So here you go. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and go through the, through the word. And I'm going to tell you, this is how you get your life and godliness right here. So Jeremy uh, lives in Chicago. This is a great comment here. He says, I I live in a middle working class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. I went to bed one night last year and woke up to the next morning. And most of all the businesses for miles around were gone. Wow. And uh, Jeremy's an African-American brother, and he's seen this stuff firsthand in his urban area. So. It's yep. it's really sad. All right, now we only got five minutes with Kevin left. We got what, five. What are we gonna do? Minutes. What are we gonna do here? I'm gonna ask him. Um, do you think payday loan places are at because you you know they only in the hood? You can tell when I fly into a city, and I see Nick's check cashing. I know I'm in the hood. I know I'm gonna have to. This uh, I am not necessarily in the best area. If I see a liquor store and they say we cash checks here or Nick's, I know I'm keep on going. Um, and that's okay. I grew up like that. I'm not even going to lie. Didn't have no light some days. Like that was, that was my life. But it, do you think that they, that that is a systemic injustice or could be because you find them wherever you find black and brown people or like urban areas, lower income areas. And, and if you, if, if you white middle-class and you got that one next check cash in place, that's trying to break them all, please don't write me. But, <laughs> um, like yeah. I see that as a systemic injustice, especially because the word says not to pray on the poor, not to yeah. to charge interest. To yeah, the poor. charge interest. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think that, they, that that certainly could qualify. I think that there's another one that's even more pervasive and prevalent that we need to address. And this is another one where both uh, D'Angelo and Kendi wrote in their books that this injustice actually exists, but they stopped short of seeing what the solution is. And that is school choice. They both oh. admitted that because of the disparity with learning and education in the black community, this is one of those injustices. It's a systemic plight in the black community. Literally everybody I know who, and I know a lot of political people across the spectrum, every time I ask them, where's your child go? They all go to private schools and their children or grandchildren go to private schools. And then I ask them, well, would you would you go ahead and, you know, uh, you know, help us? Let's let's get a you know, school choice program going this and that. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. They're relying on black and brown communities to be the cornerstone for the funding for public schools. And they want to relegate black and brown children to the public school system. And this is a, a, a real injustice because we have kids that have different learning styles and things like that. We had charter schools, we had parochial schools, we had other school platforms. Uh, parents would be able to direct their kids where they can get the most learning. And this is where we would actually see more entrepreneurialism uh, coming out because these different schools would be teaching children about how do you become an open. Uh, yes, and amen to that. Mm -hmm. And they, we they are don't trying. Do it in public schools. Yeah, well, I mean, we are trying to encourage, like, if you have a church in an urban area, you have property. Please get a vision. You want to start a justice ministry? Education. Education. Make yeah. a way. Um, you know, you don't want to start a school. Well, maybe you start a scholarship drive for a, a good school in your area. Start a co-op. Get some teachers. Get a vision. Get creative because education in the, our urban areas, where they need more choices. They need accessibility and to to unlock that juggernaut of hold um that is a big issue and passion for us so it's good all right Kevin, yeah, we go all oh, of your social justice warriors none of them will stand with us for school choice now isn't that ironic right this is a clear systemic injustice mm -hmm. so basically what happens with the abortion issue and with school choice issue is we have we we have the opportunity now to confirm the hypocrites amongst us mm -hmm. and say, look, you know, you, you may be a political activist, but you're not a person about justice. You're not sincere. Right. And we call them on it. So, um, and, but it, it's up to us too to actually call them out on their stuff. Yeah. And cause otherwise they think that they're just skating. They can just say whatever they want to say, want to say and propagandize and do what they do with no consequence. And we need to start calling them out on this. Um, before we go, I know we have a just I just wanted to give the key pillars of every Black Life Matters yes. and encourage people to come to our website. Do you mind if I just go through no, that? Please yeah, do. go for it. So our website is everyblm.com, everyblm.com. And our key pillars, just so you know, that we're sincere about taking care of the plight in the Black community. We're, we're sincere about every phase of Black life. Uh, our our pillars start with, uh, you know, protecting and preserving black life from the womb to natural death. So from the womb to the tomb. Uh, then our next one is, um, you know, the nuclear family. We know that we can reduce crime and poverty if we actually had a father in the home or a father closely associated with their children, at least connected to their children. We could stem a lot of the current crime and poverty 
with just fathers just being remaining connected to their progeny. So that's a big thing is this nuclear family. Uh, we also know that free markets, we already talked about that, are critical. We know um, uh, uh, educational choice that we just talked about, that's critical. That can actually reduce crime as well by up to 70%. Uh, by the higher the level of education, the less prone you would be to rampaging and rioting and those types of things, and the less prone you would be to other criminality. So we can reduce crime and poverty by two things, fatherhood and uh, by school choice. And the last one is, um, is nonviolence. We're committed to nonviolence. Nonviolence is important. Um, the civil rights movement was a nonviolent movement and it really moved the needles considerably for the black community. So it's important that we stay with models that work. A nonviolent movement is very, very important. Uh, we don't wanna tear up our communities. We don't wanna burn down businesses. Uh, we want to be able to have the conveniences that other communities have. So it's important that we're there. We also, uh, next week, I'm going to Tampa. I'm partnering with Savory Butchers. I'll be feeding the poor. So we actually have food deserts in certain parts of our country mm -hmm. uh, where they get meats that are several weeks old or a month old mm -hmm. in, in varying forms of, of, of frozen or, you know, not quite frozen. Um, and so Savory Butchers is providing fresh meats like within 48 hours and delivering it to the table uh, from the butcher, uh, from the uh, USDA um, slaughterhouse directly to the table within 48 hours. So we're gonna be partnering with several churches there in Tampa. We're bringing those to those communities. So we're doing all of the things in all of the areas where we see a relative plight in comparison to other communities. And we're all about doing what we can to actually help uh, black plight. Um, and it's not about racism. It's about Blacks do have a particular plight. When Margaret Sanger we want, said we want to exterminate the Negro population, she didn't say we want to exterminate the Blacks, the Whites, and she said the Black, it's a specific focus. Um, when we see the, the schools and, and, and not allowing school choice programs, there's a specific focus, not allowing Black and Brown children to get a better education. So these are the plights that we, we're concerned with, and that's why we're every Black Life Matters. So would love for you to join us, come alongside of us, partner with us in whatever way you wish. But it's been a real pleasure to actually be here. Thank you uh, as well, uh, Monique and Krista. You guys are just incredible. You're awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I know you have to get going. I just want to say thank you. We do have your website and information um, in our chat on all the streams. And we'll definitely be having you back. We're already yeah, getting somebody requests. Somebody already said, can you need to have him back? <laughs> yeah. Y'all go ahead. Yeah. Yes. So, so I want to send you my book and I want to come back and talk about my latest book, The War on Women from the Root to the Fruit. Um, there is a literal war on women and it was hatched Genesis 315. That's uh, right. I'll give mm. you that. But I want to send you guys that. So afterwards, you can give me your address and I'll send you a couple of awesome. Yeah, and then when I come you. back, we can talk specifically about elements in that book because it's really quite illuminating, I think. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. All really right. Have a good evening. Bye now. All oh. right. That was good. That was good. I mean, that was good. He ain't, yeah. he ain't playing. He ain't holding no punches. I go ahead. I didn't realize that he had a a background in, in uh, studying sociology. Sociology is yes. a great major. And then kind of was all into the progressive and liberal and then kind of came out of that. So you guys have a little something in common there. Yeah, I something. Like. something. I yeah. Like. That's awesome. Um, no, that was a really good interview. I, I'm glad he kind of gave the rundown on his ministry there at the end and 
And we just want to encourage everybody to go link arms with Kevin. Yeah, in, go to everyblm.com. Yeah, and follow him on social media and his important work there. Oh, I got it. Copyright. I got to keep that close. All right. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on in that area over there. <laughs> Alicia O'Connell already wrote in the chat. She already spotted what I was oh. up to there. All right. So uh, we should probably, it would probably be worth um, talking about for a minute here is our new small group curriculum that's yes. coming out very soon. Yes. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So July 31st, our curriculum drops. It is called Reconciled. It is a six-week small group curriculum where you get to sit down in an intimate space and have deep conversations about how do we walk out unity as the body of Christ. It is not impossible. I don't care what the world says or what culture says. It is not impossible. We can do this. You know, the idea that there has to be a thousand steps that either white people must do or black people must do before we can get to unity is not true scripture. I got to get all my whiteness Please, discipled out of me. You can get your whiteness discipled out for other reasons. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just playing. But you know, like, but that's a real, that's a real concern. Like we can't have unity. And I had a conversation with someone earlier today. We can't have unity and they were Christian until white people get, you know, they stuff together. And I was like, well, where do we find that at in scripture? We don't see that in scripture. Once you come into the household of faith and I come into the household of faith, then these things get pushed back because we, because we have a new identity. My new identity is now in Christ. Read second Corinthians five. And from there we, we are reconciled. Now, how do we walk it out? What are some of the practical steps? What does that look like? And so we just get into it for six good weeks. It has a video component and it also has a lot of scripture and teaching. This is a curriculum where I'm not trying to sit and teach to you for an hour. That's not my job. Your job is to get into scripture and understand what the word is saying. This is what we want to prepare you for. This is why Christus Hermeneutics class is so important because it teaches you how to get into the word for yourself. And so I come on, I'm on for a short time, maybe 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes for each episode. And from there out, you guys are in the word, digging through, combing through what it means. And I am so excited because it's going to be so helpful. We've received endorsements from Jay Warner Wallace, um, Clay Jones, JP Moreland, my uncle, Dr. JP Moreland. He wrote the, the forward for yeah. it. Elisa Childers, the, my favorite auntie has, you know, written an endorsement and we're getting endorsements in all the time. Joe Miller from um, the cultural apologetics center has, or the center for cultural apologetics. Sorry, has also written in. So, so we have yes. a question. When will it be available? July 31st is when it's going to drop. So our hope was to release it during the summertime so that uh, people can plan for the fall and pastors can make a plan. Uh, you can go look at the table of contents there on the Reconciled page. You can pre-order individual or small group or larger group uh, licensing, and it's going to be wonderful curriculum we're having so much fun we can't wait to play some clips for you very soon from the video teachings yeah we've been watching them in the evening as it, bob's been gosh, editing them man, it's so, so good. good like you know what guys for for y'all who've been with us from the beginning remember 
just remember back when it was such a mess. We didn't know really what we were doing. And we just continued to press forward. You guys were so encouraging and we kept going and we kept going. And now I see what, what God is doing. You know, we, we fundraise to be able to put this curriculum together. This is a family effort. You know, I didn't, I never wrote curriculum before and I sure ain't never wrote nothing about like biblical unity. I had, I had a whole nother plan and we could, I could write curriculum on reparations all day, but you know, I wrote it out in story form and Krista has the experience of writing curriculum and she sat there and took what I wrote and literally made it curriculum. And God bless Robert Bob Button Pusher Bontrager because these videos are fire. Like they, they're so good. Like I am shocked when I sit down and he's like, hey, I have another video to show you. And I sit down and I'm just like, yes, here we go. Here we go. Like, it's so cool. Now, Amanda Whaley, you need to sit down. She's uh-huh. making fun of me about my whiteness when we go to the beach. Oh, that's special. <laughs> she's only, Krista, she's only concerned about your whiteness when you two go to the beach. Now, when we go to the beach, Monique doesn't use sunscreen. No. And I sit there well, under I'm allergic towel. to sunscreen. Yeah. But I'm even a- if you, you, you weren't, you probably wouldn't be using it too well, much. I don't know. I, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a sunburn. Yeah. And I, I, I get I, burned. I sit in the sun like a, oh yes. Just, and what I do love I do? The sun. You be under towels and blankets. <laughs> it's a hundred degrees outside. You got all this white paste on you. I don't know. I don't know. But let's go to the Moe's oh, moment. Yes. We have Moe's. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm doing things wrong. Sorry. We're not following the script. Oopsies. <laughs> Oopsies. Oh, all right. So take, Two. Ah, so uh, we want to let you know about um, our one of our sponsors, Impact 360. Uh, they're one of our partners. And, um, you know, I think one of the things we were talking off air with Kevin about before he we went live was about the importance of discipleship. And discipleship is something that parents are responsible for with their kids uh, in leading that conversation. But Impact 360 is a wonderful, um, can be kind of a wonderful supplement to that effort. As you can see here on the screen, they got four uh, different programs. They got a one-week program, a two-week program. for ho- Both of those are for high school students. They have a nine-month gap year program. So sort of that time between high school and college um, to really dive deep into worldview development And then they also have a master's program. But Impact 360 is a wonderful way to kind of supplement your efforts in discipling your kids. So go check them out at impact360.org and to see if that might be a good fit for your family. Awesome. All right. Now it's time for Mo's Moment. You know, you know, you know, get your shoulders in that. You got to get the shouting a little bit, just a little bit. All right. Mo's moment. It is from the land of a Twitter dumb. It is from the Daily Wire. BLM co-founder buys $1.4 million home in virtually all white area. Black commentators slam her. Now, who is this person? 
That is not Patrice Colors. That is, oh, her name is. Is that the wrong person? Because isn't it Patrice Colors, who, the one who bought the home? I didn't, I didn't think that was Patrice. I've never seen Patrice Colors with. Long hair? I was going to say something else. But um, <laughs> um, I don't, I didn't think that was Patrice Colors when I, when I. I'm looking. It earlier. It could be, but. No, it doesn't say no. in the caption. Um, yeah, maybe it is Patrice. Now that I think about it. Yeah, so she's look- the one that bought the house, though. It says 37-year-old yeah. social justice visionary and co-founder of the controversial Black Lives Matter movement and, okay, buys so this home. Here she Okay, so she, she, in my old neck of the woods, when I lived in the valley, she bought a home in Topanga Canyon. Topanga Canyon is like million dollar, of course, because she bought one. Million dollar homes, like it sits on a cliff. Topanga Canyon. It's a little bougie. It's, y'all, Topanga Canyon is nice. But where, I don't really care what she does with her mom. Like, that's your money. However you and the Lord sorted out that money, however you got that. I don't think you got it on the up and up. That's, That's my personal opinion. I'm not trying to slander her. I don't know. What has she done for black life? Y'all, I people, I went on the, the thread and there were people who were like praising her and was like, she deserves it and da, 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 da. And I was like, for what? What has she done? She's been responsible for the burning of black businesses. She's, people who follow her have gone to jail for their looting and rioting and all of that. I don't know what she has done to help black life. I can't literally name one thing. Trayvon, I believe it's Trayvon Martin um, and another person, another African-American family who had a family member killed by a white person made a public statement and was like, you know, BLM took the money and left. They had we've asked them to not use our name. Um, what has she done for black life? Yeah. Now, go ahead. I got what is, so kind of the what are the initiatives? What are the improvements that she's brought to the black community? That's your question. You're can not, she, you're can not, she give somebody five dollars? Like I don't think they've done. You're not anything. upset that she got a million dollar home. She can live wherever she, she wants. She can live and she can buy what she wants. But I'm like, who have you given even five dollars to for gas money? Like you haven't done anything for anyone with your same color skin except basically play them. To me, that that's it. Like she a player. Like she played them, and now what what do you have for that? And people from the church pulpits made public declarations. Please send them your money, send them your money. And, you know, so they got gotten. She, you know, bought herself a $1.4 million house. There's that. I just am very sad by the fact that people continue to fall prey to, to organizations like BLM that are Marxists that continue to hurt the poor, that continue to hurt black life, that don't care about black fathers. And yet here we are day in and day out. I have, I had a conversation with somebody today who told me, um, well, how did he say it now? I'm, you just over here trying to come down hard on black people and basically lift up white people. And I'm going to pull your curtain down. And I'm like, like, what, what do you think this is? The Wizard of Oz? What are you trying to pull my curtain down? I'm not, I'm not here to, to promote something unbiblical, but you know, if what, I were is he calling you a fake, basically, a fake yeah. what? I don't know. Like you're not a real 
black person or you're just not a, a fake message, a fake scripture, a fake word. Like these things don't reconcile scripture and, and CRT for them does reconcile and oh. they should be met together. So he's going to pull my curtain down to show why, um, why what I'm saying isn't correct. But you know, if I were to go out and be like you, like James Cone and be like, Hey, if we die and then we need to take some white people with us, one James Cone or two, you know, all white people need to pay reparations or you should loot and riot until you get what, you know, your drips and your stack and all of that kind of stuff. People would put me up on a pedestal and I would have a $1.4 million house apparently, maybe. I don't know. I think it your just, desk costs $30. My desk did. <laughs> my desk did cost about $30. So, you know, it just, I thought that that was highly ironic and people came for her and um and said you know how did you spend the money and and all that but i just was like wow you know organizations that are really trying to uphold a biblical principle struggle you know and i look at that inside the church so take her off the table because she is outside of the church in the church which is with the context where you were yeah. in today that was, was where i was, a, I was in, in the a, church in a christian academic setting yeah we'll so, call it that yeah in the church um I see the same thing though, you know, so in the church, if your voice is saying, you know, white people are bad, white people are the oppressor, white people, this black people are the victim. And basically we never mentioned any other ethnic group. Um, then those platforms receive, receive the money, they receive the accolades and you know, all of those things. So this is why you can't jump in it for the, the fanfare and thoughts and like of people, you know, yeah. You, you really have to stick to your convictions and stick to scripture. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you saying what you're saying? I don't Can, know. Candy says on, in, on the YouTube chat, she says BLM and, and Candy is a African-American sister. She says BLM, they haven't done squat. If you check their BLM website, their info, there's zero info there about what they've done with their money. And see, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what, what, what are they doing? What what initiatives have they brought to the black community? How have they engaged in uplift for the black community? Yeah. So so I just thought that that so, was rather ironic. I you know it raises a question though. We got a couple minutes left. I I think that one of the things that I think that people struggle with is that they they want to have the Bible. Like we we meet so many well meaning Christians. And they, they say they believe in the Bible and you ask them that up front. Like, do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture? Oh yes, we do. I do. And, and, and they say that, but then when you start into the conversation at some point, it quickly shifts to, well, now let's have a conversation about such and such sociology. Mm -hmm. And your point is, well, if the Bible tells me everything I need to know for life and godliness, sociology is not going to come along. If it's saying something just completely radically different than scripture, I don't necessarily need to listen to that. Mm -hmm. But people, I feel like many well-meaning Christians want to find this world where they can say, I believe in the Bible plus sociology. Yes. And I think what else people want to do is they want to take the parts of CRT that are most ugly, like interest convergence, for example. So interest convergence in the, the quick, dirty way of saying it, it says that racism isn't going to end until it benefits white people. 
Okay. So, it, and, and basically it's never going to go nowhere because it's always going to benefit white people. So there's that. So some people will say, well, let's take that off the table. Some people will say, well, you know, a black, white binary doesn't really serve us. So let's take that off the table. But when CRT was created, it was created a certain way. So now what people want to do is they want to redefine CRT. They want to make something else and then say, well, I'm not really talking about CRT. And that's what happened today. It was like, well, you know, I think that I can I can divorce it from Marxism. No, you can't because that's not CRT. So are we going to talk about CRT or are we going to talk about your version of what whatever you made up? I can talk about Mo's theology, Mo's, you know, whatever I want to call it. But let's be clear, it's not CRT at this point because CRT is something very structural, very academic. It it has its place and its roots. And so I see people in the church trying to say, well, these things are really unbiblical. Like this is all kind of a mess, but I'm going to take off this extra like fluff because that makes it extremely ugly. And I'm just going to stay with this because I can at least throw some scripture to it. The fact of the matter is you can't divorce these things and then try and call it CRT. You got something else. That's just the the bottom line. Now we can talk about what you want to have. So people, what you're fighting is people want to make kind of their own customized approaches or kind of like cu- making a God in their own image, customized framework. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, what your goal is, is, well, all right, well, let's really talk about what the Bible has to say about this. Yeah. But then they don't want to talk about what the Bible has to say about CRT because they know that CRT isn't really the way. So what they do is they take the tenets from CRT that they think they can somehow put a scripture to and then say, well, we can talk about this. Well, that doesn't that's not CRT one and two. I can still we can still talk about how horrible and antithetical this is. You just put some scripture over some fake worldview like it's not a Christian worldview. Like, it's just not. It's a secular humanist framework. And each part of it breaks down along the lines at some point. Because what you now have still does not answer the question of what is a human. Mm-hmm. It doesn't answer that question. What you have still does not answer the why question. Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to be anti-racist? Why should I do justice? So you can you can take as many tenets out as you want. As long as you have one, I'm still going to be able to say, well, what's a human? It, it breaks down. But people want to, to your point, people want to say, well, the sociology says, well, I have scripture. But now in order to completely understand scripture today in the American context, I have to bring a, need so- sociology. a sociology book to it. And I'm like, no, actually, you don't, because scripture wasn't necessarily concerned. And I'm probably going to say this in a rough way so you can help patch me up. But scripture wasn't concerned with the American life. Scripture was concerned with the Christian. And how does the Christian who is now pulled from this this culture and things like that to live in a to live from a different space how do right. we live together right and in a very truly countercultural way yes you know and in being distributed among the nations but living counterculturally amidst all the nations and mm-hmm. being unified in in our beliefs and how that works itself out but what but what i'm seeing is that that when you come for critical race theory, there is a definitely like you'll get some people who they'll agree with you quickly, but then there's other people that will be like, they want to hold on to some aspect of it. Mm-hmm. They want to find some redemption yes. in 
either CRT's, um, the framework's ability to diagnose the problem mm -hmm. or to give solutions or both. Yes, and usually I find that it's both. CRT diagnoses the problem, it tells you what the problem is, and then it tells you how to solve it. Yeah. Go ahead. But I think that, that what's interesting to me about that is that what's latent underneath that is they say, well, the Bible's too simple. The Bible's not really actually sufficient. Mm -hmm. We need these extra laws, mm -hmm. if I could call them that, these extra rules. And I guess... Uh, an idea that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, it's almost like this, this holiness code of, well, this is how you actually live in godliness. We can't just look to the Bible to tell us how to, what God's standard of, of holiness and godliness is. We need the Bible plus this framework. But that's because people truly do not believe that one, to me, there's an objective truth one, but two, that scripture adjudicates for us right and wrong. Scripture adjudicates what is good and bad, good, true, and beautiful. I can't do that, nor can any secular book, secular framework. Only scripture can tell me those things. And so if I am looking to a secular framework to tell me what is good, true, and beautiful, to tell me what is true, to tell me how to, what it, how to live, how to be godly, yes, all of these things, I'm going to end up skewed somewhere because this book is flawed. This ideology is flawed. It's man-made. Yeah. So it, it really is a, an interesting thing. And, but we're, we, we definitely are seeing that pattern when we go out in Christian context is people will tell you, oh, yes, I believe in unity. Yes, I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. But then it doesn't take more than about five to ten minutes when they want to engage you in a conversation about sociology. Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, wait a minute, we haven't executed the scriptures clearly first. Mm -hmm. Have we really meditated on what this says? And my contention is that God's word is actually quite simple. Yeah. You know, share. If you see somebody need share, mm -hmm. forgive, be kind, be gentle, be patient. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also very hard to do, yeah. but the commands themselves are very simple. The, the issue, one of the issues I remember many conversations you and I had about critical race theories, how complicated it is, you know, be quiet, you know, but don't be too quiet. Because why silence is <laughs> violence. Yeah. Learn, but don't ask too many questions. Because I'm not Google. Yeah. But there were so many so many rules mm -hmm. and I was going crazy trying to abide by all the rules. And then I look at God's commands and it, it's all very simple. And people will say, well, you, you don't really understand. It's you're making it too simple. I'm not making it simple. I'm just looking in the word of God. Now is it, it's hard to be patient. It's hard to forgive. I'm not saying it's easy to do, mm -hmm. but his commands are actually quite simple and they're easy to understand, you know, you can teach them to children. You can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you get into on the critical theory side of things, that is a complicated system. And the holiness code that's attached to that is extremely complicated. And how do you ever abide by it? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think that's where part, part of the problem is, or a lot of the problem is, is that it's not that hard for me. Because I'm black. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> it's only hard for me. Okay. 
I don't have I don't have that much responsibility. According to James yeah. Cone, I have the responsibility to adjudicate which white people are, you know, fully repentant and, you know, forgiven and have done the work and are truly, you know, well meaning enough to come in to the to the flock. But, you know, aside from that, I think I can legislate maybe. I can use my voice, but all of the work now, it, because there's an assumption that people of color are already at the table, that we've already done the work. The work is now on you to do, mm-hmm. which is, again, not a scriptural thing. Not, it's not something we find in scripture. In scripture, all the work is for all the people. Not to say there, there's not work. You know, Ephesians 4 yeah. is work. Yeah. You know? Uh, Eula says, she's. I think she's uh, quoting Galatians here. She Galatians says, 3, I believe. This only would I learn of you received you oh, no, the not, spirit. Sorry. In other words, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law mm-hmm. or by the hearing of faith? Mm-hmm. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? That is Galatians. And the first part of Galatians is, um, oh, you foolish Galatians. Yeah. Who has bewitched you? That's Galatians 3.1. Yes. Yes, and yes. that's that's my contention, too, is it does feel like there is this, well, I'm saved. I believe in the sufficiency of scripture, but now I need all these works in order to become a really holy person. Mm-hmm. And I get all these works from this kind of social justice canon of sociology books. So, yeah. All right. All right. I think that's that's it. I was going to say something else. I really don't know what it was, though. That's OK. All right. Oh, that's what it was going to be. Hey, if you didn't, if you weren't here for the family meeting on Thursday, go catch the family meeting. We talked about Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes um, prayer that she wrote in Sarah Bessie's larger prayer book or a book edited by Sarah Bessie. And her prayer starts off, dear God, please help me to hate white people. And so we talked about that. I feel like social media was up in arms the last week. And so we just kind of sat down and threaded it out a little bit. And I shared my thoughts on it. Yeah. Take it. Take no, a look it's at good. It. it was really a good stream. So, yeah, go check it out. You just got a comment over on my Theology Mom Facebook. She says, no Marxist should own a $1.4 million home by definition. That that would be true. However, I found that even Marxists love the capitalist life. That is true because the rules are made for thee, thee but not, not for, for me. me. <laughs> you got that right. All right, friends. We will see you next week. Good see night. Next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to All the Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube. Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.